By the way, I forgot um, to say, but I did get my visa to India. So that's good. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now the next step is I got to get some immunizations, like uh, some cholera thing and maybe some other things too. And when I called the Department of Health, I wasn't really um, given any confidence. I was actually kind of scared. I was like, what, what do I do? Where do I go? There? But uh, so that's the next hurdle that we've got to take care of. So just continue to pray about that. Dr. Citron headed out to India this past week on Tuesday. So he's there now and he'll be there throughout the time that we're there. And we're actually flying out on the same flight, I think, once we come back. But uh, continue to pray for all that. What I'm working on right now is I've got 15 to 17 messages that I have to transcript because I can't go over 18 minutes uh, because of the, the translator has to then translate what I have to say. And that's very difficult for me. I'm not even trying to be funny. That's just like really difficult because if there's something that comes to my mind, I have to either let it go <laughs> and, or I have to put it in and take something else out. So it'll be good though because... Uh, we'll be able to use those as articles on the Bible and website. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. We're walking through the confession of faith. Just a little mini-series here, talking about the importance of the verses that are selected. Um, in regards to what we've already covered, we've looked at the divine inspiration of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. We studied the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which was shown in John 1.14. We also talked about the sacrificial death of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.3. The blood atonement is where we stopped last week. Well, actually, we, we went into the adoption of believers too, but the blood atonement, Hebrews 9.22. I wanted to say just a few things about that before we moved on. The significance of that statement in Hebrews 9.22 is the fact that the animal sacrifices could not meet that requirement to pay for sin completely. They had to do that year after year because of the priests, the high priest's sin, the nation's sin, and the sin that was brought in to the temple as well. And what we, what, what we don't see necessarily in that one verse is the sufficiency of Christ. His blood that was shed is a complete covering atonement. Freddie did a great job talking about that briefly on Sunday morning. But if you ever wonder, you know, the permanence of your salvation, can I lose my salvation? Instead of looking to, okay, well, this is the moment that I believed, just ask yourself, is the blood of Christ still sufficient? I mean, it's a valid question. If you ever find yourself answering, no, it's not, then you better be looking for Jesus to be back here on the earth, getting ready to go to the cross again. That, that's what would have to happen. But the sacrifice is permanent, and therefore, our salvation is secured. Amen? That's good stuff. And, and when, when I deal with uh, people that are suffering from, like our, the, the gentleman who was just writing in, uh, intrusive thoughts and anxiety, I try not to point people back, you know, make them recall, like, well, when did you trust Christ? Because there's some type, there's some theology out there that's like, well, if you don't have the time and date, were you ever really saved? How could you ever forget the day of your salvation? That's such, it's, it's, it's so predatorial. Because it, once again, makes people trust in who? You. Well, do you remember? Well, if you don't remember, then are you really saved? Come on, that's, that's dangerous. Instead, we go back to what does the word say? If you believe on Jesus Christ, you are passed from death into life. 
The blood has been applied. It's been put to your account. It's imputed, done. Has any of that changed? The offering of Jesus, the imputation to your account. Has any of that changed? No. So guess what? You're still saved. And the day that you're no longer saved is the day that the sufficiency of the blood of Christ runs out. And guess what? Boy, do I have good news for you. It's never going to run out. These are things that we stay rooted in and then we grow from them. Okay, we're not trying to continually prove, am I saved, am I saved, am I... You already know that, now grow from it. That's, just, that's the importance of uh, Hebrews 9.22, the blood atonement. Then we have the adoption of believers. We looked in Galatians 3.26 that those who have put their trust in Christ, they're now called children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have two verses, it's really three, but it's two sets, in the Confession of Faith, which is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and Romans 1, 16, that teaches this fancy word called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's a lot in this statement here that we could spend a significant amount of time on, but for the sake of time, I want to focus on a few things. For by grace are ye saved. This is the manner in which salvation was given to us. It is by God's grace. We did not do anything to deserve what God chose to do in sending his son on the cross. What we deserved is eternal separation from God in that hell forever. That's what we deserved. But in God's unmerited favor, his grace, he has given the opportunity for all men to be saved. Focus on that, the opportunity for all men to be saved. How is it received? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. The not of yourselves, again, refers back to the way that God gave his grace. God didn't look down and say, because of your nobleness, because of your good deeds, I will die for you. There's a lot of doctrine that is teaching that today, and it makes God a respecter of persons. But God has chosen that anybody who simply believes, exercises faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're saved. It is the gift of God. Now, that's hotly contested, and that's not going to be the focus of our study, but the it is referring to the gift of God being that grace of the gospel. It's not faith that's the gift. And we can get into the Greek, but when we look at that, <laughs> that word faith and that word grace, it's two different uh, uh, genders as far as uh, the, the Greek language goes. You, and you can't take something that's feminine in grace and connect it to something that's neutered in faith, and then say that it is referring to uh, faith. It's different. They're, they're different. And when we, when we start changing that, and we say, oh, well, faith is the gift, you, you run into a lot of problems. Again, it's repeated in verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't think the last part is focused on a bit, but what this is saying is there is no one who's going to stand before God and boast on their own works with the blood of Christ for salvation. The only time, the only people that will be judged according to their works are those who are judged 
at the great white throne judgment. Believers are also judged, but they are judged on a basis of rewards, not standing with God. This is important to recognize the difference between these two. At the last day, when everything is said and done and the devil has uh, been loosed for a season at the end of the thousand years and he's defeated and the great white throne judgment happens, anybody who is in line to stand before God will not be able to get into heaven. The Bible teaches about varying degrees of reward. It teaches about varying degrees of punishment as well. And I believe at that judgment that they're going to stand before God and they're going to be punished according to their works. And that's it. There's not going to be one person who's at the judgment seat of Christ for believers who's going to say, well, I am here completely righteous of the blood of Christ and my own good works. It's not how that works. And that's the significance of what Paul is pointing out here. He's not pointing out that it's nothing that you do. You're so dead that you can't do anything. This is a reminder, be humble in your salvation because God has shown grace in his son. It's received by faith distinctly against works. There's a, there's a phrase there, diametrically opposed. It's like the light switch is either on or off. Trust me, as a kid, I tried to get the light switch in the middle. If it was already on and I put the light switch in the middle, it stayed on until it came up. There was no weird on-off, light, dark thing going on. It's either light or it's either darkness. It's the same thing with grace and works. Romans eleven six talks about this as well. Now look in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Page 1192. Paul's really kind of, he's starting to break down a lot of soteriological terms here, but he makes this statement, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now I want you to see this because we say it every Sunday, but I want you to see how this is written. Paul says, Paul says he's not ashamed of something. That something is the gospel of Christ. The next two words refer to that gospel. For it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God is found in the gospel of Christ, of which Paul is not ashamed, and the results of that gospel message is what? Salvation. And what's the qualifier? That believeth. And who is this available to? Everyone. I mean, this is real simple. You don't need an education to, to, to dissect that. You need an education to twist that. And that's what people do. They go get their little education. All of a sudden, they come out and they say, oh, well, the everyone here is the elect. That's not what that says. As a matter of fact, the rest of the verse proves that it's not just the elect. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The whole nation of Israel is gathered in Israel today in a state of unbelief. They are still rejecting their Messiah. And I'm telling you, there's a bunch of wisdom and science falsely so-called that's rejecting Jesus Christ. That blood, that blood atonement is still available for them. But important to recognize that the power of God is in the gospel unto salvation to anyone that believes, and the gospel of Christ has to be defined. And you can put as a side note there, 
It's, it's laid out in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. It's laid out in John 5, 24, when Jesus says, you believe on me. And there's a bunch of statements that are made in John that talk about different things that happen to an individual once they believe. But the soteriological position of Calvary Community Church is one that lines up with Scripture. We don't need to quote church fathers because we've got the original text. We don't need to quote any other confessions of faith as the sole authority of the church because, once again, we have the Word of God. We'll let the Word of God speak, and every man is a liar. I mean, that is, that is an important way to look at commentaries and man-made theologies. Assume from the get-go that man is a liar. And until he is in line with what God has already said in his word, then the word of God has validated what he said. This is why it's so dangerous when people walk into a church and they say, God gave me a private vision, he gave me a revelation. That should be the biggest red flag, two-handed, you know? Like, man, what, what could he say? And you've got to judge it by what the word says. All right, let's look at the next one here along the line. It is 1 John 5, 13. This is the doctrine of eternal security. This is the book that I'm writing those 15, 16, 17 uh, lectures on for what I'm going to teach over at Solid Rock uh, Theological in India. 1 John 5.13 says this, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. There's the qualifier that ye may know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He's writing to people who have already believed. And he's telling them to have assurance that a part of what you have received because of your belief is that you are in the position of eternal life now. You're in the possession of it. It's your standing in Christ, and it's also something that you have, totally secured. Back up just a little bit in verse uh, 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. That witness is the Holy Spirit. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. People don't want to admit this. But when an unbeliever rejects Christ, they are calling God a liar. That, that's, it's plain and simple. And if that makes the unbeliever feel uncomfortable, oh well, that's what you're saying. That sounds so blunt, right? That's so pastoral. But it really it is what it is. If you don't want to receive Jesus, you are essentially saying, God, what you say about your son is a lie. Well, guess what? You've made that decision. Now, God is merciful, and he's gracious, and he'll give you a chance all the way up until the day of your death, but you don't know when that day is, so you might as well get it together and know for sure that what you're calling God a liar for is accurate. What many people end up doing after they've rejected Jesus Christ is they, they, they go to what they only know, which is their sin nature, and God hardens that heart through their sin, and that's of no that's of no reason but of their own belief. Pharaoh is a perfect example of someone that experienced what we call judicial hardening as Pharaoh continually said, no, Moses, I'm not going to let your people go. God hardened his heart. Does that mean that God got in there and made Pharaoh make that decision? That's not what Romans 9 says. 
look at verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us, that, it, that us is qualified, people who have believed on the Son, eternal life. And this life is in your prayers. This life is in your faithfulness. No, it's in the Son, Jesus. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You, you, this is who you are now. You are in possession of eternal life. We want to repeat that every week as a reminder of what we have in Christ. The next one is in the same book, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. The advocacy of Jesus. Now as a believer standing here before you who has a sinful nature, I really like 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. <gasps> you mean free grace theology actually says you shouldn't sin? I thought we had a license to sin. It's so funny how easily people make that assumption of the free gospel. I don't even like calling it free grace gospel. It's just the gospel, amen? But all of a sudden, people go, wow, the Bible does tell us that we should avoid sin. That's a good thing. And if any man sin, now hang on a second. If any man sin, come on, folks. You know that if is a win, amen? We all sin. You, excuse me, we have an advocate with the Father, the Pope, the church fathers. Pastor Jesse. No, no, who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate, it means to come alongside. Jesus stands alongside us that as we sin, and we're just told that we're not supposed to sin, but the inevitability of our sin because of our sinful nature, he stands beside us and intercedes on our behalf. How does he do that? By his precious blood, amen? This is, the, this is an encouragement and a reminder that as you grow in this Christian life and you continue to sin, and by the way, I, I always think when people say, well, you know, it's habitual sin. It's all a habit. Been doing it since we were born. My daughter is cute and cuddly as she is. She knows how to do wrong. I didn't have to teach her that. She has, okay, we're just gonna time out there. I was gonna make a joke, but I'm not gonna say anything. Love my wife, you know. <laughs> she, we, don't, we don't have to teach her that. It's, it's who we are. The problem is, do you have a payment for that? And if the answer is yes, it's only in Christ. And now as we grow up into spiritual maturity, that flesh nature, it doesn't go anywhere. It actually inflames and it fights against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you could not do the things that you would. But you have an advocate when this thing is winning. When the flesh is winning, you have an advocate. You don't stand condemned before God because you slipped up today. It's all paid. But you have a reminder, don't walk in this. Walk in this. We just did a series on Bible and it's getting ready to air pretty soon. It's a four-part series on mental health. 
I see so much going on in the world today, especially with our young men, that is telling them the, the, their problems is they're not, they're not in enough shape, they're not making, excuse me, the solutions for their problems are they're not in good shape, they're not making enough money, they don't have an alpha mindset. No, the problem is you're trying to do something that can only be done through a new nature. You're trying to reform something that will never be able to be reformed. You need Jesus. That's what these, that's what these young men need. And it's kind of a heartbeat for me right now because it's a majority of people that watch our channel. Kids that are 17 all the way up into adulthood of 34. They're parking on these videos about turning back into perdition. What's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? All these different things. And I realized people don't understand the dual nature of the believer. Boy, if you understand that, you're going to have a lot more victory in your life. This verse is a part of that. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Two more here. John chapter 4 and verse 35. This is the gospel of John over to your left. John chapter 4 and verse 35 The phrase that we say is, we believe the fields are white, all ready to harvest. This is right in the middle of the conversion story of the woman at the well. She believes on Jesus. Verse 28, she left her water pot. She went into the city, began to share the gospel. Meanwhile, the disciples come back and they say, Master, have something to eat, verse 32. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? Who brought him something? Because we're the ones that have the food. Jesus in verse 34 says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The eyes are the eyes of those who are believers, those who are supposed to be laborers. The fields represent the people of the world. The ripeness means the four months, the, the span of people's conversion. It is coming to a close. Jesus said this a long time ago. A long time ago he made these statements. Nothing has changed except we've lost more time. The fields are white, are ready to harvest, is an instruction for you and I, as fellow laborers in the body of Christ, to get busy bringing in the sheaves. There's a song. I don't remember how it goes, but it talks about the sheaves being what you harvest from the wheat. Bring that in. Be fruitful with your Christian life. Don't sit around and look at the sky with your hands in your pocket and wonder when something good is going to happen to you. Go serve the Lord. And, and go win people. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that whereupon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. I wonder if he's talking about the woman there. Because she's gone into the city and you see later that, uh, <coughs> verse 41 actually, and many more believed because of his own word. So Jesus was out there bringing in the sheaves and then giving that example to the disciples. You know, this is early in John's gospel. Even in John chapter 13, 
when Jesus washes their feet and tells them, I'm going to go and die, but I'll come back and prepare a place for you, all that, Philip still says to them, show us the Father. And Jesus says to Philip, have I not been with you so long? And you say, show me the Father? The disciples, for all the experience that they had, they were still not seeing things. But let me tell you, when Jesus came back, and they were with him for that 40 days, and when Pentecost happened, those men knew what to say. And we don't have to go, oh, oh, so, oh there's some mysterious thing, they went to figure it out. It's, it's all right there for us. We just have to go do it, right? All right, last one is the soon rapture of the church, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. We're going to be looking forward to this. Y'all know Kyla's looking forward to the rapture every day. You know, we were just talking about the whole doctor situation. You know, we're talking about finding a doctor and all this stuff. She says, I mean, she's still looking for a doctor, okay? But, you know, her attitude is, we'll be raptured by then. We'll be raptured by then. And you know what? I used to knock it in the beginning, like, come on. But now it's like every day I'm like, Lord, is today the day? Because I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get up on out of here. There's nothing that I would be sad about that I didn't get to do if the Lord came back today. I wouldn't go, oh, but who's winning the game on Sunday? By the way, I am so disinterested in this matchup. I'm just not interested at all. I've already said to like Trenton stuff like, I'm not going to watch. I'll watch probably a little bit. But I'm not like, you know, we, we get out of church at 7. I'm not going to be like rushing home. Is it just me? Or does this matchup seem so dull? Can you tell I'm a very bitter Bucks fan right now? Like, there's no other. <laughs> this guy. Get over it, man. It was two weeks ago. I know, but... No, I'm just kidding. Titus 2.13, take a look. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is that put there? Well, it's really supposed to remind us of what starts in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to the elect... Wait to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, there's that instruction to sin not. <laughs> what do you know? We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, all for what? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior who? You're not doing this for any, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing for anybody else but Jesus Christ. And you should be looking up every day for him to return. You shouldn't be looking to get kudos with the Sunday school teacher or with a denomination or a YouTube channel or a pastor. You should be doing this for the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find that you, meet, you, you will have all the sustenance that you need in doing it for him. I wish that people, and I'm praying for you, that you can recognize and understand the reason why I'm doing this thing, these things are for Jesus. Not for something the church, this church could give you. You do it for the Lord. If, if, if Jesus were removed from the equation, what would we have? The Bible says we'd be of men most miserable, primarily because we wouldn't have the resurrection. We wouldn't have a payment for sin, and we'd be in the same position before we got, that, that we were before we got saved. But praise God for his son, amen? And we should be looking for his soon return. So when you read the Confession of Faith on Sunday morning, review these notes. When you hear 2 Timothy 3.16, we're talking about the fact that the Word of God is inspired. It's not, you know, conspired together by men like, you know, I don't know how they could have done it. It would have been a remarkable feat. 
When you hear about John 1.14, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, you know that's talking about Jesus Christ and His incarnation. I think people, you know, we can zone out when we do repetitious things. That's why we do communion just once a month, because we want to avoid it being something ritualistic. People can kind of get attached to that. But we shouldn't just say these verses for the sake of saying them. I think it is a little funny that we say it all in the same, like, uh, cadence too. We believe the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Like there's nobody that goes, we believe the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's like we all say it at the same time. You remember when Bob tried one time, he was like, let's, let's switch it up. I mean, I, I, I get the effort, but I kind of cringed. I was like, <laughs> but we can get into a habit of just saying these things. Recognize what you're saying. Focus in on the truth of these verses. The, the, the one that gets me the most is the fields are white already to harvest. That, that's, that's a requirement for me to go do something with this, compared to eternity, this small amount of time I have. And to encourage you to do the same. Amen? All right, you can close your Bibles. Look up here. I want to share with you the greatest news in all the world. This hand represents you and me. This represents our sin. I put this on top of my hand because the Bible says... For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. God loves us, but he hates our sin. It separates us from him. Perfection is required to get into heaven, but we all fall short because we are sinners. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire burning hell. God loves us, but the sin must be paid. The wages of sin is death. It is not good works. It is not religious piety. It is not turning from something, starting something, stopping something, or giving of anything. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Somebody's got to die for this. God, in his love for us, sent his son, Jesus Christ. This hand will represent Jesus, who is the only begotten son of God, fully God and fully man. And what Jesus did is he lived a perfect life. He met all the requirements that were needed because he is God. And he died on that cross. And he took this sin and paid for it. He was buried and he rose again three days later, proving that that payment for sin was accepted and the invitation is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, anybody, believeth in him. Just a simple exercise of faith in Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who shed his blood to pay for your sin. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It's not a guarantee that you won't die physically because we all have bodies that are just getting worse. It's a guarantee that you will not perish spiritually. And there are some of us who will be in the rapture, and that's a great thing, but should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's exactly what you receive when you, by faith, trust on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I think of those who might be watching on the internet tonight who are just coming to this realization that uh, as sinners, they're separated from you, and that their good works, good intentions are are not going to be enough to save them. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody who's watching on the live stream that has just come under, this, under the uh, understanding that it's simple faith in Jesus Christ alone, that they would let us know and that we can pray for them, Lord, and knowing that they're added to the body of Christ instantly the moment that they believe. I pray for those here in the audience. We all have our issues and difficulties, Lord, but I pray that we can be looking up for you and not just looking down and being downtrodden. I pray that we'd be uh, 
busy with the time that we have, not just doing things for the sake of doing things, but serving you. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.